Today's program is entitled Secularism, Part 2. Hello my radio friends, thank you for joining me today in another program in the series Give Me the Bible. I hope you're well and that you are learning more about God's book, the Bible, through these programs. As well as that, I hope you have learned that God loves you and has invested a huge amount in order to have your friendship. Today, this program is more of an examination of another world view about origins, a world view that is in contrast with what the Bible teaches us about origins. Secularism teaches that what we have, what we are, and what we see about us came into being without any design, planning, or intervention by any outside force. In other words, it just happened. It was by pure accident, or, if you like, luck. Personally, I find that impossible to accept, particularly when I consider the makeup of the human body and in all the living things with which we come in contact. Everything seems so well designed and finely tuned. I find it impossible to believe that without any design, even with squillions of years of accidents, things could turn out so well, to be so complete and so functional. If the idea of evolution as promoted by the secularists is true, it is far more likely that life, creatures and plants would be confused and full of mistakes and not complete and functional. Traditional Australian Aboriginals are very spiritual people. Their idea about origins is that certain creation beings shaped the earth and created certain people, creatures and even colours during what is known as the dream time. Buddhists believe that life is an infinite cycle and don't even bother to examine the issues any further than that. Hindus believe that a being known as Purusa was sacrificed and his body was the entire universe. The lower quarter of his body supposedly became the earth and the rest became the remainder of the universe. Muslims basically believe that God created the universe. Who are we to believe? The secularists? The Australian Aborigines? Buddhists, Hindus, or what is recorded in the Bible. In Western countries, the two main contending ideas are those of the secularists, that is, evolution, or creationists, who accept intelligent design, and sometimes that's called creationism. Last week, I shared with you some questions that the secularists, that's the evolutionists, are not keen to hear. 
as they do not have plausible answers. This week, I want to share with you some more questions and to provide some commentary associated with those questions. So, here we go. Question 6. Living things looked like they were designed. So, how do evolutionists know they were not designed? Richard Dawkins, one of the most prominent evolutionists in our time, wrote, Biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. And then he adds, but they're not. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the DNA double helix, wrote, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So much for their statements. Their problem is that living things reveal so much design that it's impossible to overlook. An archaeologist finds a pot in an excavation. No one objects when he or she talks about its design. It is obvious that it had a designer and a baker. But when someone talks about the design of some living thing, suddenly the evolutionists speak up claiming this, which is a far more complicated thing than a pot, had no designer. Even a simple object such as a feather shows evidence of complex design features. Evolution does not have a brain. If it does have, sorry, if it does not have any designer, it is supposed to have come about as a chance, a fluke, an accident. In real life, a chance or an accident usually produces chaos, mistakes, and ends in death. There is so much evidence showing the fantastic design in living things. To desire that design is foolishness. I don't admire these so-called scientists who deny the existence of a designer, especially when they admit to complicated design. Now we go to the next question. Question 7. How did multicellular life originate? The standard teachings of evolution is that first life was supposed to be a single cell which happened to form in chemicals often called primordial soup. Certain chemicals supposedly came together and bingo! The cell was formed with its super complicated structure, the billions of bits of information stored in the DNA, and so on. But the question refers to multi-celled organisms. However, did cells combine together? Some to take on one function, and others other functions. How did they learn to cooperate, and what to do? However, did they know how to stick together and to operate as a single unit? Now, the odds of getting one cell to grow out of an array of chemicals is extremely complex. But the odds of getting a group of cells to stick together 
to stay alive and to cooperate to function in different ways for the good of the whole unit is simply mind-boggling. The odds of a single cell forming from non-organic chemicals is one in multi-billions. The odds of many cells forming into a single multi-celled unit and acting together in harmony is even worse. The chances of that happening are so remote that it comes into the realm of impossibility. Gamblers gamble because they accept that there is a possibility that they could win. The odds of winning lotto are about one in 45 million. The odds of a particular horse winning a horse race are one to the number of horses in the race, say one in 25. But consider the odds of multi-celled organisms developing by chance. The odds are something like one in thousands of trillions. Not even the most committed gambler would take a bet with odds like that. Yet the evolutionists are promoting an idea as truth where the known odds are so impossible. There's a much greater possibility of being bitten by a white pointer shark in the middle of the Sahara Desert than the formation of either a single cell or a multi-celled life form from non-organic chemicals. Yet the evolutionists expect us to believe their implausible explanations. Multi-celled organisms scream out design. Yet evolutionists close their mind to the idea that there must have been a designer. Now we're up to the next question, question 8. How did sex originate? Put another way, the question means how did the complicated process of reproduction come about? <clears throat> Consider the process involved in mammal reproduction. A male inseminates a female. The process of sperm meeting the female egg is not simple. The conditions must be just right. The timing must be just right. All the equipment must be in place. The necessary hormones must be switched on at just the right time. There have to be all the right organs and all the right chemicals and all the right delivery mechanisms and all the right means of nurturing and feeding the developed fertilised egg. There have to be systems in place to feed the fetus, systems to deal with waste products, and much, much more. It is a very complex process. Take out just one thing, just one, and reproduction does not happen. Then new life does not happen and the species dies out. Yet evolution teaches that all the necessary things for reproduction just came about. To me, that the idea of reproduction came about without design is totally impossible. 
everything has to be in place in the first instance, otherwise it does not happen. Take the example of a car. If there is no delivery system to deliver the fuel to the engine, the car will not go. It's useless. Yet what the evolutionists are teaching is like saying that one day a wheel developed. Then maybe a seat developed, and that joined up with the wheel. Then, millions of years later, a radiator developed. At no point was this ever a car. A car becomes a car when everything is in place, working in harmony with everything else. The same goes for sexual sexual reproduction. It will only happen when everything is in the right place from the word go. Now we're up to question nine. Why are the expected millions of transitional fossils missing? This is a really embarrassing question for the secularists. There are fossils of fish. There are fossils of lizards. If fish turned into lizards, where are the fossils of the fizzards? If the secularists are right, there should be millions and millions and millions of such fossils. But those fossils are completely missing. It seems to me to be a matter of confused thinking to support an idea where one species is claimed to have turned into another species if the evidence of that happening is totally absent. From time to time, some paleontologist comes up with some fossil claiming it to be evidence of evolution. Now, don't be taken in by this kind of news. It's just one example is not good enough. There should be millions of such fossils. Take the example of the colocanth fish. A so-called millions of year old fossil of this fish was found and the evolutionists proclaimed a wonderful intermediate fossil find. But the so-called unusual looking fish is actually a living modern fish and some have been caught near the Comoro Islands in the Indian Ocean and also off the coast of Indonesia. The supposed intermediate fossil was not on an intermediate species. All fossils found have the same features as the modern skeletons. Where are the fossils of the intermediate species? Why are they not there? They don't exist. They don't exist, according to many people, because evolution is a scam, a fairy tale, a worldwide deception. We'll have a little break and we'll go on straight afterwards. Yeah. 
Question number 10, which says, How do living fossils remain unchanged over millions of years if evolution has changed worms into humans in the same time frame? Simplified, the question means this. If worms eventually changed into humans over a period of, say, 400 million years, How come there are still worms? Why haven't all the worms evolved into humans? Professor Stephen J. Gould, a famous evolutionary biologist, wrote this. The maintenance of stability within species must be considered as a major evolutionary problem. If Professor Gould couldn't provide any answer, for the continued existence of, say, worms, then it's logical to assume that the evolutionists do not have an answer. The Bible, however, does have an answer. It says at, the, at creation, God made living things after their kind, which is a bit like saying that God made the different sets of species. One kind didn't turn into another kind. Mice didn't eventually become camels, and worms 
did not end up as humans. But mice did not disappear because they eventually turned into camels. Worms did not die out because they eventually became humans. Mice remained mice and camels remained camels. Mice and worms remain because that's how they were made by God. Question 11. How did blind chemistry create mind and intelligence and meaning and altruism and morality? Now here's a really big question. How could intelligence, morality, morality and care for others exist if man was the end product of chemicals bumping into each other? There is no intelligence in evolution. So how could something with no intelligence form intelligence? Evolution has no meaning. How could something in which there is no meaning provide a meaning to existence to living things? Evolution has no morality. How could something with no morality provide morality? That is, a sense of right and wrong. In evolution... There is no love. How then could evolution explain the existence of love? This question points out how ridiculous the whole concept of evolution really is. Some years ago there was a widely published debate between a devout evolutionist and a committed Christian. The subject of the debate was over the existence of God. The, evolution, uh, the evolutionist argued that there was no God. The Christian argued in favour of there being a creator God. A significant argument put forward by the Christian in favour of the existence of God was the existence of love. He argued that within the concept of evolution was the business of blind chance where choice did not exist. He referred to the other platform, forcefully promoted by the evolutionists, survival of the fittest, that is, survival of individuals at the expense of others. In both these ideas, there is absolutely no love, no consideration of others, because love does not fit in with evolution. The Christian debater argued that love and choice were linked and that the Creator God built into mankind the attributes of intelligence, morality, meaning and love. Evolution does not have any satisfactory answer to explain love, morality, kindness and other such things. Question 12. Why is evolutionary just-so story-telling tolerated? There is no doubt that evolution is heavily promoted and sometimes on the surface it seems mildly plausible. But as soon as you ask a few questions, the whole theory collapses. Yet, people swallow the theory as if it is truth. It's my opinion 
that society at large is being brainwashed and lied to. Furthermore, I think the devil has a deep interest in the promotion of the theory of evolution as it wipes out the knowledge of God. People who learn that there is a loving God will also probably learn that God has made a way to free people from the devil's clutches, that Jesus came and provided a way of salvation. Satan certainly doesn't want that, so it is in his interest to keep people in the dark about God. But there are many, no, not the majority of people, who are prepared to examine and check if ideas are true. And I hope, dear listener, that you're one of these and will not swallow the first story that comes along. Question 13. Where are the scientific breakthroughs due to evolution? Think about it. The time, the money, the resources spent on trying to pop up, uh, prop up the unstable theory of evolution have been wasted. If all that money and resources had been put into proper scientific research or humanitarian projects to help the needy, the world would be far better off than it is today. Evolution actually hinders medical discovery. Dr. Mark Kirshner head of the Department of Systems of the Harvard Medical School, stated this. In fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution, and molecular biology, biochemistry and physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. When the question is brought to its lowest terms, Evolution has not been of any scientific benefit to society at all. Question number 14. Science involves experimenting to figure out how things work, how they operate. Why is evolution, a theory about history, taught as if it is the same as operational science? Now, Science involves observation, postulation, testing through experimentation, and then replication. Only then can it be determined if the observation is correct. With evolution, the scientific process cannot and has not been observed. It cannot be experimented with as that would bring intelligence into something that's supposed to operate without intelligence. The proper scientific method cannot be applied to evolution, yet evolution is taught as proper science. Yet evolutionists claim that creationism is not science. If they're right, then they should apply the same rules to evolution. Evolution is not science, yet it's taught as science. There's a lot of wholesale dishonesty in the teaching of evolution as science. Now question number 15. This is the last question. Why is a fundamentally religious idea 
a dogmatic belief system that fails to explain the evidence taught in science classes. This question, of course, relates to the previous one. Evolution is a belief system, a kind of religion, yet it's taught as science. Michael Ruse, an evolutionist science philosopher, hit the nail right on the head when he said, Evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is still true of evolution today. Society has a big problem in tolerating that evolution religion is being taught in science classes. The cloak of science gives the theory of evolution credibility it does not deserve. I for one have pointed this out to the South Australian Non-Government Schools Board and I'm happy to say that they've done something about it. To finish off today, I want to share with you something that absolutely amazed me that came from a television documentary about a legal case involving teaching of creation in schools in the United States of America. It was a definition of evolution, and here's how evolution was defined. As a significant, unidentified force which through long periods of time guides the formation and order of extremely complex molecules and of exceptionally intricate functions of those molecules. I never heard or read up to this point that evolution was a significant unidentified force that had an active role in guiding towards a mature end. Who do they think they're kidding? Or perhaps they got mixed up and were really talking about the Creator, God. Well, that's it for today. I hope what has been presented to you in this program has enlightened you and given you a strong reason to trust in God's holy word, the Bible. Until next time, I wish you health, happiness and peace and I hope you will take the time to read the Bible for yourself.